The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. To the Hero Series. Today I'm joined by special guest Bruce Piasecki and creator of the Hero Series, Dr. Susan Anthony. Dr. Bruce Piasecki is founder of the AHC Group, a management consulting firm specializing in energy, materials, and environmental corporate matters since 1981. He's also the author of seven seminal books on business strategy, valuation, and corporate change, including the Nature Society's book of the year in search of environmental excellence moving beyond blame his articles have appeared in the los angeles times baltimore sun technology review and the christian science monitor his latest book the surprising solution was published this year and since 1990 dr piasecki and his staff have run hundreds of benchmarking workshops for numerous multinational corporate affiliates involving key executives in site remediation power markets, emerging issues, and governance concerns since Enron. With his corporate environmental strategy book attracting the attention of change agents and board members in his client and affiliates network, Dr. Piasecki has moved the field of environmental and energy strategy closer to financial markets and mainstream financial diagnostics. His profound work is changing the perspective of business leaders through new ideas and a visionary approach to a future where frugality and sensitivity to social interaction is paramount. Bruce Piasecki and Susie Anthony, welcome back once more to the Hero Series, our third program together today. Delighted to be here. Yes, delighted. Bruce, we have enjoyed so much the first two programs with you, and we complete our journey today traveling from the ninth stage in Susie Anthony's heroic journey. And I'd like to start off today, if I may, with Susie. Susie, I believe that you're going to set the scene for us with a summarized review of the hero's journey and also incorporate into that what you teach about the shamanic path from South America and Africa. 
Yeah, I'd like to briefly recap on this work now to help Bruce and our listeners to understand where they are in their journey of transformation so that they can be prepared for what's coming next. And through my direct experiences and research and influenced heavily by the work of great visionaries like Don Miguel Ruiz, Dr. Alberto Bioldo, Dr. Credo Mutoir, Alice Bailey, Krishnamurti, Sri Yukteswar, I became convinced that the shamanic and mystical view of reality had great validity and that the modern world had forfeited an understanding of intuitive aspects of being in its pursuit of rational materialism. I dug up today everything I know about South American and African shamanic teachings that I work with, which directly interpret the hero's journey via four stages. And the first stage is awakening, where at the onset of any kind of transformation or personal growth, we're at the stage of awakening and we're still thinking of ourselves as adolescents, not really as mature adults, and as a single person and not a partner, or as a paragon of health and not a patient with disease, then something cataclysmic happens that shakes up our world and our eyes open and nothing feels as if it will ever be the same again. Yet we continue to cling in the awakening stage to our old ego shadow persona selves, usually in fear of what will happen if we shed the skins of the past to reconnect to a better self waiting to emerge, the hero. The unfortunate thing is that much of our gross domestic product is then generated by businesses which profit or feed off our ambivalence, our confusion and trepidation during this stage of awakening. For instance, designer fashions, cosmetics, plastic shirt surgery, the leisure industry, even what I term as the wedding industrial complex. We're awakening, but we're fearful of taking any steps forward. This happens almost simultaneously with the second shamanic stage, which they call departure. And that's where we realize we need to shed the skins of our old lives. And like Siddhartha, who became the Buddha, we decide to leave the palace, renounce the riches and all our attachments to people, places, things. And if we don't take this step consciously or willingly, we're normally dragged into it kicking and screaming, rather like Jonah and the whale. We get stripped of many of the things that matter to us in the ordinary world. For instance, our job, status, our partner, books, possessions, health, house. The good news, though, is that sometimes we don't always have to lose our house, but suddenly it will no longer feel like home. We don't always have to lose our partner, but suddenly our partner doesn't feel like our partner anymore. And the alchemists and the shamans of the West called this stage Negredo, and it's about the, the blackening, the burning, the breaking down of old structures until we reach a point where we can no longer discern what's real or meaningful in our lives. And Jung considered the Negredo an essential stage for individuation which is the process of becoming a whole person. And I'm calling this now reconnecting to the hero. At this stage, departure, we struggle with the pain of our loss. Hopefully, 
that pain is the very catalyst we need to inspire us to complete the process of the great departure. But if we don't complete for any reason, if, if we become fearful and if we get stuck, then we get bound by our shadow and all the unhealed parts of ourselves begin to dominate our lives. And it takes incredible courage and real guts to go out and find our promised land. And we can only do this by being willing to do the work of personal development and self-transformation. It's this very work and taking action to do the work which then prepares us for the next level, which is test. And the tests help us discover and unlock denials, suppressed emotions from all kinds of wounding. And we learn how to banish our personal demons. And just as we feel we're beginning to make some progress on the hero's journey and have done significant work on ourselves to overcome ego, we then get tested to overcome the seven toxic emotions, similar to the seven deadly sins. And alchemists call this stage albedo, and it's the whitening stage in which impurities are ground away and polished. It's about polishing our diamond. All our personal demons get loose in the form of these seven toxic emotions. We might be tempted to become angry at ourselves or project anger onto others. We suddenly find we're lusting after what we've been programmed to think would make us happy. We may become slothful and apathetic and inert. We may become filled with false pride, suddenly experience all kinds of greed. We may even begin to envy others and think that their life is how we wished ours had turned out. And we realize we're on a quest to find and be our best selves. When we feel safe in this realization and trust this, we know we'll be guided. We know that all the right people will come in and mentor us along the way. Our worldview begins to change radically, and we can see all the opportunities disguised as loss in terms of what the gift of our suffering is, rather than becoming a victim of the suffering, the disease, the loss, the betrayal. So tests call us to action, and we have to embark on the hero's journey, face the monsters, conquer the demons that lurk deep within our psyche, and either come back victorious or not at all, or worse still, carry on in denial, just doing, having, consuming. Those are the first three stages in terms of the shamanic model for the hero's journey. The final stage is illumination. And I'd like to talk about this when we hit stage 12. So I hope that's some help. It's very helpful to me. We're going to briefly revisit your stage nine, Susie, of the hero's journey. And we are going to reference according to your notes. The ninth stage that we have already traveled with Bruce, the hero has survived his first psychological death ordeal, overcomes his fear and now earns the reward. Bruce, would you briefly talk to the conflicting tensions between resistance and emergence in terms of any psychological deaths that you must have experienced with reference to your jack-in-the-box way of living where you may have resurrected yourself, your relationships and your 
worldview along that journey? Well, I can very much relate to what Susie described as, you know, the quest to banish your personal demons and that there may actually be uh, more toxic emotions than the seven deadly sins. And I think that starting with the premise that one is in the jack and the box, one is in this box where a kind of domestic certainty is available to the self, and yet you know deep down that you have larger obligations inherent to family or community or to the public or to a corporation. You, you do need to unlock, as she said many times, um, an easy desire to deny all this and just go back in the box. So I can very much relate to surviving those early temptations. And um, I am fascinated by the metaphors about the whitening and about conquering the demons. Um, there comes a certain point where the rewards outside of the box are so stimulating and the adventure is so supreme. But I think in the early days, what she's referring to as the first or second or a series of psychological deaths, it's much easier to fall back into the jack-in-the-box. Um, but when you make the great choice with another you know, when you meet your Jill or when you start climbing those first mountains. I think you also have to talk about how some of it is just so rewarding to adventure out that there's also all kinds of positive stimulus and positive drives, and hopefully we'll talk about that. But I, I can see, if, if, if your listeners keep in mind the idea that there's plenty of repressive forces to push down the lid and keep you the jack-in-the-box. Well, is that not part of the hero's journey that you are always wherever you are on this journey at whatever stage you're at you you always have the risk of being pulled back in the wrong direction bruce absolutely and, and in my in my way of thinking the reason why sometimes the issue is so ordinary is that you know there are plenty of reasons to just stay in bed and listen to the news as opposed to reacting to the news and trying to create a positive contribution to reply to it. So I think you're right, David. There, there's, it's a daily thing. Um, but I think by looking at it in retrospect across decades, you do realize it has phases to it. With that last question in mind, Susie, you, if you would kindly give us a very brief description of what you mean when you talk about psychological death, because that question on my part was purposeful. Are we going through a psychological death every time that we are pulled back into that temptation out of any stage on this journey back into a world that we know that we should not be in? Archetypal or psychological death is not normally a literal death, even though it sometimes feels as though we may be physically dying. It's a symbolic death which is part of every initiation, growth, or transformation process. And it's kind of like a free fall into the great abyss of the unknown, or back into the box. Bruce would so calmly, pragmatically describe it. But really, it includes the death of old ideas, of limited, outmoded beliefs that no longer work for the hero self in formation. So it's death to old friendships that don't seem to gel any longer transforming patterns of old self-image 
all of this comes as a prelude to a new type of mythic journey, the hero's journey, where archetypal death or psychological death requires abandoning the old maps that once, once, once helped us to navigate our lives in ego. And there's a story about a hiker who discovers a man at the base of a mountain carrying a wooden raft on his back. The hiker asks him why he's carrying this heavy wooden raft strapped to his back because there's no water on the mountain. And he answers that this raft saved his life once. <laughs> and the raft represents all the beliefs and skills that once served us but have now become a burden that we carry on our back. That really is the breaking down to break through and we call it psychological death. Let's move on to the stage 10, the road back, the hero must return to the ordinary world. Susie, I have a very clear understanding of the belief paradigm that you reference here uh, and that terminology that you use, that lack. It is the paradigm that, uh, that's at the heart of all corruption. I understand that. What I'd like to do, though, just before I pose a question to Bruce, is ask you about the level of consciousness and what that definition is that really places us apart at this stage to make us victorious. Awareness, consciousness, that consciousness is a, is, is a completely different paradigm once you return from the special world to the ordinary world. It is a consciousness that few have, that you are, are now gifted with that possession? How I would explain it succinctly is that once I returned to the ordinary world from the special world, I had reached a point where I stopped feeling that the world was conspiring against me. And I recognize that my story of loss and resurrection is really an archetypal human experience that we all share. The blessing is that it offers incredible opportunities for transformation, growth, and illumination. And that's the consciousness, the higher level of consciousness, is the glass half empty or half full. I began to see it as half full and focus on the positive potentials and possibilities rather than gloom and doom. David, I think that that's probably one of the two most important things that Susie just said that relate to this, the reason why it's relevant to your audience. The first is we all have to live in the ordinary world. However, if you create the fine-hammered steel of beliefs that allow you to see opportunity and satisfaction rather than dread and fear, it, it, I think the most fundamental thing she just said is it's probably the same cup or yeah. it's probably the same box that Jack lives in. H however, the enlightenment is in the awareness of seeing it in the new way. And it's amazing when you see this happen to your friends or when you see it happen to your lovers or members of your family. It does, in fact, happen. I think... The second fundamental thing that she was really saying in a, in, a, in a wonderful way is thought matters, that how you frame your perception in either going back home in the door that you thought you had to leave or returning to a work project or providing some social service, 
what you think about it is what's transformative, not just the thing itself. Is that what you're saying, Susie? Because I, be- I, I exactly. clearly believe that. Exactly. I would also ask, Susie, are you also now using as much of your heart as you are your intellectual capacity, your mind? Your heart really leads and guides your intellectual process. Yes, you're right. And we train ourselves to get into that state through psychological recapitulation, which is another shamanic process which doesn't try to eliminate all unpleasant feelings. Rather, it understands that important areas of one's life, people are actually empowered when they can identify knee-jerk, egotistical, fear-based reactions and be in touch with feelings in the heart, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, appropriately sad or regretful of failure, rejection or frustration. But the most important thing is to deal with these feelings in the moment and transcend them. Reacting in ego from mind only is then replaced with responding from spirit to any given negative situation. That is wonderful, Susie, because that's where I was going with that. That is an incredible clarification that you've just provided me. You are obviously armed with now at this stage, I guess allows you to seamlessly, effortlessly glide between these two worlds? Yes, that's, that's how it works. And it does take training and it does take discipline. And eventually it does become effortless. Let me continue. In the ordinary world today, the financial world is being run by a powerful belief system, therefore. Bruce, a question for you. What is the solution to that belief system? And perhaps your answer to this question is the gift that you bring back to your own ordinary world experiences on a day-to-day basis. Obviously, with your background, uh, you did lack certain things in your early life and you created significant material success in your later life. Correct. You know, I think what uh, we're talking about is this, if you keep in mind the idea of the half-full cup, keep in mind the idea of the the jack-in-the-box for a minute, it is transformative. If you accept the fact that once you look at the cup and you realize that you have um, enough talent or that you can work well enough in teams and group dynamic, and and you get the confidence in your heart and in your head, you can begin to answer the question, what is enough? So the person who falls prey, the mighty person who falls prey to the seduction of greed, looks at the cup and may continue to think that the only way to solve his thirst or her thirst is to keep filling the cup. And they, and they never realize that it's in the structure of things that they need to discover what is enough, that it's in the act of discovering what is enough that we discover the pleasure of frugality, you know, the commanding presence of being efficient with a limited amount of time on earth, and we discover the power of being a gift giver instead of a, you know, a miser. So what I would say historically... For many centuries, uh, the reason why I think it's appropriate for Susie to refer to you know African and, and, and South American and ancient wisdom, 
I think since World War II, much of our thinking has been about becoming more efficient, but not more frugal. We're looking at the cup, and we're trying to figure out, how do I get more use out of the water that's in the cup efficiently, um, instead of asking, what is enough to take? If you put that into simplistic terms, Bruce, basically those in society who live simply with money as being their iconic value, they're the ones who never have enough. Another way to think of it, Susie, let's see, and David, if you like this. I'm sorry, Susie, were you going to say something? No, I'm just saying I'm in total awe of your calm pragmatism. (laughs) But here's a new thought that I'm working on in this eighth book, Doing More with Less, Another Way to Wealth. I, 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 I have come around to finally see more clearly that it is fair to say at a certain point in our lives, there's a pleasure in being frugal. There's a pleasure in being creative. There's a pleasure in being generous. There's a pleasure in simple growth. And that doesn't take a lot. You can get those sacred things of being generous, of, of, of growing social capital, not just personal capital, by just stepping a little outside of the box. And so what I'm trying to work on now, David and Susie, is that on a daily basis, you can derive these things that the great literature of the past tells us not to forget. And, and it doesn't take as huge amount of resources as perhaps we first think it does. I had actually, Susie, I believe forgotten a, a quotation, there is not enough for all, therefore someone must go without. And I think that's what we've all been talking to here. I believe you have a now famous Star Trek parable about lack and how to overcome it. Would you care to share that with our listeners very briefly? Yes, I will. It comes from my book, and it's about Voyager being pulled into the void, where it turns out all kinds of other lost ships were struggling to survive. And when Voyager first arrived, they were instantly attacked by one of the other ships, and 90% of their food and supplies were stolen. And the crew soon discovered that other ships already in the void could only survive by stealing supplies from each other and whenever possible stealing from new unsuspecting ships the moment they stumbled into the void. And when Captain Janeway discovered that they didn't have enough power to leave the void on their own, she asked the other ships to form an alliance where each ship would pool their resources and technologies and strengths and skills with the other ships in the alliance. And they'd find a way out of the void together. And it was difficult to convince the other ships that this was a good idea, but eventually several ships did join. They shared their resources and made it possible for all the ships that were working cooperatively to leave the void together. And those who refused to join the alliance due to their entrenched patterns of fear and lack were left in the void to continue as they had before. So really what the story is demonstrating, I was incredulous when I watched this, It's the power of cooperation and working in community to achieve what otherwise would be impossible. So some of the ships had been in the void for years, barely surviving by competing for the limited supplies and resources that might wander in from other ships. But then living from competition had created separation, distrust, hatred, and loss of resources that could have benefited everyone if they'd chosen to 
share and cooperate with one another. Whereas the ships that did choose to cooperate and share ultimately changed their lives, moving their existence from the experience of lack in the void into an expansive and abundant world. So cooperation unifies and strengthens a greater whole, moving our experience from struggle to survival into a whole new, more abundant world of possibilities. And I mean, totally really backs up what, what Bruce has, has just said and what I was talking to earlier. And that kind of consciousness is coming through in Star Trek. We are fast moving through this program, as per usual. The, the way that Susie has just expressed that example, do you think that in our world today that... When we talk about sustainability, we talk about frugality, we talk about the reduction of fossil fuels. Do you think that there is a point of no return with people across the world where there becomes a majority of those having this sense of community and cooperation that Susie talks about and this huge overwhelming sense of consciousness that things really will change and the the world will take on a, a different color? That is my fundamental grounds for hope besides personal fortitude or personal rectitude. There seems to be a historical trend where the consciousness of caring beyond the self and beyond the nation is becoming more real. So. I think it's a phenomenon of having 6.8 billion people in the same boat and having such swift information um, about how small the boat actually is, this world, how long we've tried to understand what is enough and how long it's taken us to understand the restraint. So my new grounds of hope in, in my books has to do with uh, the yes to your question, in the sense that I also think of it in terms of Henry David Thoreau and Gandhi. If, if you have a dominant system and it's going towards excess and dangerous ways, what the careers of Gandhi and Thoreau proved in civil disobedience is that if you learn how to stick your hand in the machine of the wrong, there is a resistant and surprising force in stopping that negativity and stopping that dominant culture. I do think there's also millions of people who are part of this progressive culture who are, who are having the discoveries of what is enough and restraint. And so it's a combination that there are some that have the resistant force of stopping the wrong, and then there are some that are beginning to live and articulate the better that what Susan has, Susie has described as seeking the better self, that's becoming possible for more of us. So Maslow's definition of self-actualization continues to rise in this new century where people can go beyond self-actualization into caring about things larger than eros, what Freud would call eros, and, and caring and not fearing Thanatos, death, but instead getting a sense of the larger purpose of why we're on earth. So um, it could be religious, it could be personal, it could be professional. My point being that more of us are discovering it, David. Susie, we talk about this, a majority or a point at which that consciousness and awareness 
become so overwhelming that the in some circles you can say that the light overcomes the dark or or maybe you can say that the polarities come together as one what is your perspective on this before we move on to the 11th stage i've heard from one of my mentors that in order for a mass collective awakening to occur it only takes the square root of 1% of the population of planet earth working together in harmony to create that seemingly the number is as small as 8000 people i'm extremely hopeful as is bruce that what i'm seeing in the world every day is the beginning of that critical mass of consciousness focusing on the positive and and beginning to realize that the miraculous is just really a right brain technology whereby when we tune into the intuitive mind and let that guide the intellectual mind we can create anything we choose to experience that's really where i'm coming from with this let's go to the 11th level the resurrection hero another test where the hero faces death and he has or she has to use everything that they've learned. Susie, uh, you experienced near-death and divine intervention almost two decades ago, typical of that that's defined in the eighth stage of the hero's journey. And this took you beyond the ordinary world of the five senses, deep into the mysteries and power of the special world. Through harrowing tests and ordeals, you reconnected to the hero inside and learned the special rules. You found your gifts in the form of these incredible maps to God materials and brought them back to share with everybody in the ordinary world. However, in opening yourself up to share these gifts and teach these practices, you say you accidentally entered the 11th stage of the hero's journey, which required another death. And we had been talking to that earlier and I think it's worth covering this again and going down this road again. This, as you say in your notes, another rebirth. And of course, having read Joseph Campbell, he refers himself to the hero's resurrection. Very briefly, Susie, can you give us some background on your stage 11, stake of casting the pearls before the swine, a special role you seemingly forgot in a moment of what you describe as Bambi-esque naivety, a deadly moment? What happened to me at stage 11, I experienced, this really began, I suppose, about three years ago in the form of a cruel betrayal where various students who had received teachings which they weren't totally ready to receive and, and couldn't balance the power. But actually, the selfish behavior of these renegades was in fact a great gift to me these fallen heroes i i've come to call them actually rewarded me with this final test to learn to love my enemies and there were so many lessons i learned and have lived in this final trial to learn to discriminate to learn to understand the difference between true wisdom and the conceit of wisdom and in terms of never casting pearls before swine I learned that if you empower someone who isn't willing to work on their own shadow, all you empower ultimately is their dysfunction. And Harry Harrah 
Harananda Paramahansa, one of the great Indian gurus, said, Susie, if you put nectar into a poisonous cup, all you get is poison. It took incredible courage to overcome the desire to take this personally. I always say to people, when you're truly connected to courage and the courage of the hero inside, you have a spiritual practice, not just a spiritual library. And you understand that all the knowledge in the world is useless if you don't apply this knowledge and put it into action. So for me, the 11th stage, casting pearls before swine, turned out to be a blessing when they turned around and trampled the teachings under their feet and turned against me. Bruce, let's turn to you. On your own hero's adventure, have you ever cast pearls before swine? Tell us something about your life in the White House, perhaps with Al Gore. You were working together on developing a higher profile for environmental issues. Would you say that the response to Gore's environmental creed occur has been somewhat lackluster? Yes, and, and in fact, it's pretty clear that he has been demonized for stepping forward and articulating a known need of this new century. So I think um, even after coming out with The Inconvenient Truth, um, there are very strong forces in society, both corporate, industrial, and media, that are um, trying to take him down. In in my own experience, which which has not been as high visible as the vice president, there are times when people have accused me of the opposite of what I intend. You know, one one person uh, in particular in a public setting uh, was attacking me from the point of view of he believing that what I was doing was the opposite of what I was trying to speak. Or uh, so I do think that. In a normal democracy and in a normal swift and severe world, there will be many and continual rebuffs. Uh, I love what Susie said about learning to discriminate and learning to love her enemies. I think there is a, a special character, a special feature that I'm willing to say I probably need to work on that more, Susie, in the sense that I probably have a greater instinct to fight back than I do have an instinct to forgive. So I know that's a weakness, and that's something I'm working on. But um, it is clear that if you hold on to the truth you're trying to articulate, and, and you articulate it with the passion of how you hold on to it, there will be opponents that attack you. And that's part of, you know, on a cynical day, you could say that's part of the game. We, we don't, once you leave that jack-in-the-box and you begin to ascend a public setting, some people are very cynical about it. I'm not cynical about it. I mean, um, Jack Welsh of GE used to say, the higher you climb, the more the monkey's uh, butt is seen. <laughs> what, what I believe the situation is, is as you have a more impactful or consequential comment, it earns or deserves more critical scrutiny, and there will be people on the whole spectrum attacking what you do. The fundamental thing to keep in mind is the positive drive of what you're trying to do, you know, such as curiosity and another person's opposing view or the social integration of how you find a compromise or just the sheer enjoyment of competency to do something that people perceive as larger than self-interest. You know, it might not fully be the avatar of altruism, but it stands tall so in the long mix of things, I guess I would say her two fundamental messages that I'm thinking about, one I understand wholly, and that is 
there is a mandate to learn to love your enemies. And the second is, I'm probably not as good at it as I need to become. Let us uh, move on to the final level. Return with the Alexia. The hero returns from the journey with the Alexia and uses it to help everyone in the ordinary world. And along the way of the hero's journey, the hero has been resurrected, purified, and has earned the right to be accepted back into the ordinary world and share the Alexia or reward of his rites of passage. And the true hero returns with something to share with others or to heal a wounded land. Bruce, I know the writings of the Founding Fathers have profoundly influenced you, especially after our many programs together. And I'm going to repeat one of Susie's favorite quotes from Benjamin Franklin because she feels it's so powerful and so pertinent to what's happening today in terms of what could be described as the anti-hero's journey. Any people that would give up liberty for a little temporary safety deserves neither liberty nor safety. What do you think that Franklin meant by this in terms of this statement being his Alexia to heal a wounded people? Well, I think he meant that the things that really matter in life, such as liberty and freedom of action, the safety to pursue the quote-unquote good life or the the well-spent life, as Cicero called it, that those are things that take a lot of life trajectory. They're not just temporary. So Franklin was criticizing those that were willing to concede major needs, major social rights for little wins, and that that's what wounds people sometimes. Um, I believe that when you have a defense authorization vote held up by current politics less than 10 days ago because people didn't know how to debate the issue of gays in the military is an example of what Franklin's talking about. We, we need liberty, we need safety, but you can't, for a little temporary issue, hold up those greater social needs. So I do believe that Susie chose one of the great comments of Franklin because there is a kind of short-term stupidity at times where we give up so much. I much prefer a world in which we do so much with so much less than the idea of giving up the fundamental things. In summing up, Bruce, Susie has guided us through some of the typical challenges that we might expect to experience in search of true freedom the tests and ordeals that call for risks to be taken, sacrifices to be made, fights to be fought. In terms of all the chaos in our world today, as perhaps being a collective core to change, what have you learned in this journey that we provided you? Elegant way of setting this out into these 12 stages that you yourself can put into action personally to, to almost continue transforming yourself and your world. I do believe I learned a lot. I was looking forward to these as we continued to do them, both because it made me think of friends and lovers and mentors and sponsors. But I think the fundamental thing is that I now believe the fundamental thing about that 12-step journey is it teaches not only self-knowledge, but also an appreciation of social capital. I think too much of the modern century has been focused on the self-measured private financial capital of wealth. But I think what Susie's work is exploring is worth, not wealth. And self-worth is often measured in the larger context of social capital. 
it's not just what you think of yourself, it's what everyone else allows and thinks of you. For this stage to be authentic, we have to come back with boons or gift for others. And that this stage can never be about small me and ego. The Buddha came back from his quest with the Four Noble Truths. Christ came back and taught us all about turning the other cheek and unconditional love, practicing peace. Gandhi, similar gifts. Psyche returned from the underworld, giving us the gift of inner beauty. And if we come back from this last stage of resurrection merely with another anecdote or another bit of an insight about our lives, it's not been an authentic initiation. Illumination is where we have no need to tell anyone anything yet we'll gladly share when asked. And that final realization has caused me to stop casting pearls before swine, and what a relief that is. What I would say is the shamans believe that at this stage we can grow new bodies that are free of genetic inheritances and that we can age, heal, and die differently. And I know this is true. It happened to me in 1992, and it's happening to me again now. Referencing your book and uh, in talking about the world being in trouble and uh, the way that we're destroying our planet and the way that we lack that real purpose, how can connecting to the hero inside that we are providing our listeners change all of this and bring about the miracles that we need? We grow through breakdown to breakthrough experiences and sometimes they're mysterious and exciting yet most often they're dramatic traumatic and frightening without the ancient maps and a teacher the the quest to restore our spiritual integrity may take an entire lifetime or worse still due to unconscious psychological blocks and denials it may never happen at all so my boon, my miracle to share with the ordinary world is the Maps to God materials. I've synthesized from all kinds of different teachings and ancient wisdoms. If people are prepared to work on the self, they will find all the answers they need within from heart connection and allowing the feminine, allowing the heart to guide the male, the intellect. And when we have completed this sacred marriage, this conjunctio, we arrive at the harvest, which is illumination. Then our lives become totally engaged around a higher purpose and higher meaning. And it's impossible to give up or go back to the old way of living in personality. And to me, that is miraculous. That will change our world. Bruce, I hope that you will be returning in the future to a Heroes series again because I'm sure that this is a never-ending journey full of miracles. I hope that you'll be um, taking this ride with us over the years. Absolutely, and, and thank you, Susie and David. I think you've helped me a lot Remain when I'm interested in remaining and grow, which is be frugal and be generous and try to be alert and creative. I think that then adds to social value over time. Bruce Piasecki, Susie Anthony, thank you so much, Bruce Piasecki. I do hope that you'll join us again one of these days. Absolutely. And to our listeners today, you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening.
David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.